Okay, everybody. We might get started just while um, Pat Sharif is getting mic'd up over there. Um, we're running a little bit late, and I'm very conscious that you've all made time to come here on a Friday afternoon um, for the presentation, so I'll try not to take up too much of your time. But before we get started, I'd like to begin our proceedings today with an acknowledgement and to pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today, um, who are the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and it's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices today within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge that has been <coughs> embedded here forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Um, before I get started too, I'd also like to say a very big thanks to Sydney Ideas, who are co-hosting the event with us today. And my colleague Meredith has left some uh, surveys with some of the participants, uh, some of the audience today. Um, they're just looking for feedback on um, the Sydney Ideas program. So if you do feel like you'd like to fill one of those out, you can just leave them on the table um, outside the room when you're leaving after the presentation is done. Uh, for those who haven't met me before, my name is Elizabeth Kramer. I'm one of the deputy directors of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. And on behalf of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, I'd like to extend um, a warm welcome to everybody here today, particularly our special guests from the Indonesian Consulate General um, who have joined us today for the presentation. Thank you very much. Um, a little bit about SIAC. Uh, this, uh, Sydney Southeast Asia Centre is the university's focal point for uh, engagement with Southeast Asia. We have over 280 academic members across the university who are working on projects related to Southeast Asia. And this actually represents one of the highest concentrations of Southeast, expertise, uh, Southeast Asian expertise in the world. So we're very um, privileged to, to have this at our institution here at Sydney. Without too much further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome our speaker today, Dr. Laude M. Sharif. Uh, Dr. Sharif is actually an alumnus from the University of Sydney. Um, he completed his PhD here at the Sydney Law School, so we're very pleased to welcome you back to campus today. Um, he has held numerous esteemed academic positions in Indonesia and around the world, but most relevant to the discussion today is his position as a newly elected commissioner for the Kapika, who will be serving until 2019. Dr. Sharif will be giving a presentation on fighting corruption in Indonesia's natural resource sector, a topic which I'm sure we're all very keen to hear more about. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Dr. Sharif up. Um, Dr. Sharif will be speaking for about an hour, and then we'll have about half an hour for Q&A at the end. Thank you. Uh, 40 Good afternoon. It's nice to be back uh, in Sydney again. And uh, uh, first of all, I would like to thank Elizabeth Teams and Prey, who actually organized this, and some other friends from Indonesia who collaboratively actually doing the, uh, the hosting of this, uh, today's lectures. I'll be talking about like 30 minutes, I think, uh, because the more I talk, it's maybe more you get bored with the corruption in Indonesia, but I expect a lot of uh, questions. As today, I'm talking about sometimes it's quite difficult to, dis to be discussed, even though in Indonesia, but because this is necessary, so I have 
to talk about because this is actually one of my job in the KPK. But before that, I think it is always nice to remind uh, my Aussie friends because even though we are so close, sometimes it's not many actually, actually know what is Indonesia. Or <laughs> if you compare your knowledge with UK, for example, you can actually point out every street in London, but uh, even though so far away from, from Australia. And also I want to say hi to some friendly Bulinda and some other friends. <laughs> uh, I used to teach uh, Indonesian judges and uh, prosecutors and police uh, from Indonesia in the past. And I actually, because I came from Sulawesi, it's not I'm from Jawa and I kind of like a little bit proud of my heritage. So I think that the early link between Indonesia and Australia uh, long before James Cook actually sailed to Botany Bay, uh, the Makassar has been here. And if you don't believe, you can actually read those, the face of Maregues, and I feel at home to rediscovering my Aussie heritage. <laughs> uh, just an overview of uh, natural resources in Indonesia, for example, you can actually see a map of Indonesian natural resources, we have quite complete uh, and quite rich in natural resources, just like in Australia. We even have actually the biggest gold mining uh, in, in the world, it is actually located in, in Papua. And of course, the core resources in Indonesia, even though it's not too big uh, like in Australia, but we do have a lot of coal in Indonesia, not only for Indonesia, but also we are exported outside Indonesia. And if you look at an oil and gas reserve, of course we still have a lot, but this is because I teach environmental law in the past, and sometimes I like to give this uh, as one of the examples. We used to be part of OPEC in the past, but 2008, Indonesia withdrew its membership from OPEC because, of course, we are importing, mostly importing oil instead of exporting. So, yes, I think oil and gas are not sustainable. Renewable energy resources, we do have a lot, but if you look at the installed potential of ratio of capacity installed at the moment, it's still very, very low. Even though we have, for example, geothermal capacity, micro hydro, hydro powers, and of course, wind and solar. But if you look at the number of the installed potential ratio, it is still very, very low. Apart from the target of the government to have mixed energy about 25% uh, contribution from renewable energy source. Apart from that, for example, yeah, of course, we are quite familiar with uh, the course of natural resources, and I think Indonesia also experienced the same things. Because I do have a friend from the embassy today. I'm sorry if this uh, lecture may not be uh, politically correct to be, <laughs> to be conveyed by the by diplomats, but uh, I still feel myself as a lecturer here in Sydney University. I want to uh, try to be honest as possible. 
And so if you look at those potential, and of course there are a lot of corruptions within uh, natural resources exploitations, as you can see, so we are using kind of like a hybrid approach in using to combat corruption in natural resources. Because you cannot just, in the past I teach environmental law and uh, every judges and the police and the Bulinda and some other friend here in Sydney Uni, Ben Bua actually involved in that. But if you look at the level of enforcement of environmental law or natural resources law or forestry law, it is very, very low. So it doesn't mean that we do not have a good law. But level of enforcement, it is not up to the level that we want it. So that's why we are looking at ways how to tackle this problem. Welcome, Chief Justice Brian Prestons. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for coming. <laughs> yes, uh, and also we are using many other law. I actually try to tackle. Uh, corruptions in natural resources. I'll give you one example. This is actually the governor of East Kalimantan in 2005. He issued illegal permit for 1 million hectares for oil, palm oil plantation in Brau in Eastern Kalimantan. The state laws at that time about 5.697. This is supposed to be billions. It's not. But at that time, he got only four years and only 200 million fine. We are not happy with that. But at that time, because can you imagine, he's giving a license for one million hectares of land. Natural forest. Do you know the size of Bali? Yeah. The size or the size of Singapore. The whole country of Singapore, it is less than 800,000 hectares. So this one particular license is more than one big Singapore. Another one, and he, one of them actually gave it to this guy, Matthias, his name, Otto Pung King Wakes. He is the president director of Surya Dumai Group in 2005. So he also received this timber util utilization permit for and palm oil plantations. He cleared the land and neglected it. He just wanted to take the timber, even though he applied for palm oil plantations. But look at actually the jail that he got, only 18 months and 60,000 US dollar fine. Plus it's quite a big one, 4.6 million US dollars for state restitution. Another one, this is my favorite one. He actually, he is actually, Bupati, Bupati is actually a region, just like a mayor uh, here in Australia. He issued 15 logging permits in Palawan district in Riau from when he was actually serving as Bupati. But seven companies belong to his family. And, but luckily, the Supreme Court, because this case actually went up to the Supreme Court, and he, the Supreme Court gave him 
11.5 years in jail plus 500 million rupiah or about 55,000 US dollar fine and he had to pay about 1.3 million US dollar for state restitution. Why we are using corruptions, anti-corruption law instead of environmental law? So that's why we are using a hybrid approach because otherwise if actually using just environmental law some of them it has to be enforced by the police and of course Ministry of Environment and usually they never do their job proper so the KPK has to intervene but of course we cannot enforce environmental law we have no authority on it but we knew when they give a license it must be a corruption in it so instead of using environmental law forestry law or some other law actually related that's supposed to be actually enforced <laughs> by the police or by the ministry of environment or the ministry of forestry since they do not they don't do their job properly then the kpk actually doing the job another one We've been actually detained and prosecuted the three governors of Rio, Rio provinces. He, this guy actually issuing nine illegal forestry permits and sentenced up to 14 years prison in jail and of course with one million years dollar fine. It's not enough, but that's what the court say. So there are a lot of it. It's supposed to be, this is actually the in the area where the Ministry of Environment or the Ministry of Forestry or local the, or the police have to take action first. But since they don't properly enforce the law, as Pak Brian, Justice Brian Preston actually keep teaching the Indonesian police, prosecutors and judges, so it has to be KPK. KPK it is Corruption Eradication Commission, which is now just, uh, just nine months elected as one of the commissions. So it is the KPK who do the job, not that. But of course, we can actually do it through environmental law. We do it through anti-corruption law. Because, but this is very difficult to prove, right? We have to prove there is a kickback from the company, and there is a relation between the company and the governors or the ministry, for example. In this one, this guy, his name DLC Torus, he is actually in North Sumatra. Anybody from Medan? Student from Sumatra? Yes. <laughs> ah. He is actually established about 80,000 hectare palm oil plantation on state forest in North Sumatra without any license from the government. But he can keep operating for more than 10 years, about almost 20 years now. And people uh, just let him do his job and until the KPK came. And they are prosecuting him under anti corruption Act and Forestry Act. He got eight years in jail with 500,000 fine, plus the whole plantation is to be returned to the state. 
and the impact of corruption and bad management, of course, we can actually see it almost everywhere in Indonesia. This is only one example in, in Maluku where the environment destroyed. This is illegal mining. There are artisanal mining, not a company, but if you look at who are behind those people, there are some company and so difficult to stop because behind them high-ranking military officers, high-ranking police officers, and of course, they are working with local governments and provincial governments. But when actually the current president went to Maluku and see this, he said, okay, we have to stop this. What do we do to tackle this? So apart from enforcing the law, we are also do some coordination and supervision measures to prevent corruption in natural resources sectors. And we establish, we work with many stakeholders, including NGOs and Ministry of Environment and Forestry, Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources. We created, we call it a national movement in rescuing Indonesia's natural resources. The scope of this movement, including forestry, plantations, marine and fisheries, mining, oil and gas, and energy. We have now a complete study on forestry and mining. For example, in our study on mining, we found out there are 5,000 problematic licenses all over Indonesia. We call it not clean and clear licenses. Some of them, they have a permit, a license, but they do not have tax file numbers. Some of them, they have the tax file numbers, but they do not report their activity. Some of them, they do not even pay tax. So we still have 23.7 trillion rupiah uncollected money from this company. Just three weeks ago, the Ministry of Finance came to KPK and said, and we told, we told her that, okay, we have a lot of money uncollected by local governments and the Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources. And she said, how come? Yes, I don't know, because they are not doing their job. But not only on mining sectors. We are also have a lot of money on forestry. For example, if you are doing if you have a special licenses to have logging company, for example, you have to have you have to pay to the government at least rehabilitation money and also some uh, what you call it rehabilitation after, because after that you have to replant it and it has to be given to the government apart from tax and non-tax revenue. But there are trillion rupiah is not uncollected by the government, so that's why. The KPK feel obliged because this is the statement. It needs to be collected and we do not want to see those money 
actually go to the private pocket of corporations and state authorities. If you look at, actually, it is involving various level of government officials, a member of parliaments, private sectors, military, and the modus operandi, it is it's not that actually sophisticated, mostly bribery, illicit enrichments, giving illegal permit, uh, and also there are some conflict of interest when actually they're giving license, favoritism, and a poor governance. This is actually one of the examples that we do since actually we study oil and gas. And after that, we are studying a study on a planning and monitoring of forest areas. And we develop a study on policy study on coal industry. It's been every year and we come up with recommendations to the governments. After the study, we list all the recommendations. Uh, for example, if lack of the enforcement of the law from the Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources, so we ask them including the governors and, of course, a law enforcement agency like the police and authority general office. Unfortunately, still in Bahasa Indonesia, but actually, if you want to read, those studies are actually in the KPK website. I've been trying to persuade the Secretary General of KPK that every study of KPK needs to be translated into two languages, at least English in Bahasa Indonesia. So you may ask, what is actually the duties of a KPK based on the law? We have, under the Article 7, we have the power to coordinate government's authorities, including law enforcement agencies. And in the area of the enforcement of the law, we can supervise the enforcement of the law on corruption matters. We can, because there are three agencies that has actually have the power to investigate corruption cases, which is the police, the Attorney General Office, and the KPK. The KPK only can only investigate corruptions that more than one billion, one billions are rupees, or involving government officials or uh, public uh, public officials. And also we have this uh, uh, power to do some kind of prevention, like education and also establishing good systems, uh, for example, for local governments. And after that, we can actually monitor whether they do the job or not. If they don't, then we can actually report it to the presidents or otherwise we can actually do our powers on prosecuting them. So that's why usually if the KPK invite the governors, they always come. If it, and of course, we invite many ministries and the ministers come to us because we give them first actually a warning to do better prevention and to enforce the law that has to be enforced by them. If they do not know things, then we can come up with another step 
just like prosecuting them. For example, we already asked all the governors of Indonesia to fix up the 5,000 problematic licensing on mining. And at that time, we gave them it has to be fixed by the end of May this year. But after we check it, there's still about 3,000 unfixed. So we asked them again, what the problem? And they say, because there is a new law in Indonesia, in the past, at district level, they can actually give mining licenses. But the new law say it is only the governors and the minister can have the power to give licenses for mining. In those bupatis or head of district, they are not willing to give the information about licenses to the governors. So that's why we give them again an extension for four months and hopefully by the end of November, those another 3,500 problematic licenses can be fixed. Yeah, of course, we work with the central governments, our local governments, and law enforcement agencies, and civil society and business. And this is actually the declaration that we made. We asked even the, the chief of the army, the chief of the police, the president, to take uh, and witnesses by the president and the vice president, forcing them to do their job. So that's why sometimes I kind of like feel a little bit proud to save the KPK because we have that power or simply because they've been afraid to be investigated on corruption-related cases if they do not doing their job. This is an example of coordination and supervision efforts on mining sectors where 13 ministers, ministers and 32 provinces actually come and sign a petitions and statements in our office in Jakarta. We are also expanding now on marine and fisheries. And based on that particular project, this natural resources movement, we actually discovered that everybody wants a positive change. But sometimes they do not know how to do it. They are, and also, I'm sorry with the English of it. There are a lot of sectoral ego between those ministers. So usually they need to talk, but they have no venue to talk to each other. So that's why KPK it has become a meeting point of those government officials. I just give you another example. Just three weeks ago, we are prosecuting these governors which is actually came from my own uh, provinces in Sulawesi, I investigated for using illegal mining and permits inside protected forest, for example. And I love this. When the last tree is cut and the last fish is killed, the last river poisons, 
then you will see that you can get the money. Join me. Thank you very much. Yeah, because we are not responsible for the presidents, uh, we are an independent, independent agency. Uh, we do not. Uh, we only responsible for the people based on the law. So, of course, it will be good if actually the effort of the KPK are actually in line what the government wants. But of course, in our terms, we want to synergize the prosecution aspect of KPK and the prevention. Why we need that? Simply because I'll give you an example. We've been prosecuting and sent to jail three governor of Riau. But if you go to Riau today and you check the licensing systems, the way they procure goods, and it is almost uh, the same. I even actually openly say to the governors of Riau and say the KPK will not investigate or prosecute another governor from this province and the people actually love it. It's simply because we want them to fix themselves. Yeah, so that's why in order to synergize the prosecution aspect and the prevention aspect of corruptions, so I send three staff of mine to assist the governors try to fix, for example, in establishing one roof uh, licensing systems, so in one roof, and also more transparent and accountable process. And also we force them to have e-procurements within their governments. And so that's uh, actually the, the, uh, the narrative that we want to build. But if you look at in the last, I'm just nine months as a commissioner by KPK. Yeah, we prosecute a lot. <laughs> yeah. From clerk of the court that actually after the investigation, this is just clerk. And the people say, why are KPK actually looking for a clerk? It's not high-ranking officials. 
But when you check it, it is quite amazing. He got 19 luxury cars, one big hospitals, several luxury houses, and even an amusement park. <laughs> and they say, yeah, he is actually he's not high-ranking officials, but if you look at his wealth and his influence for bending the law, it's terrible. And about executing governors, and just three weeks ago, sorry, the speaker of the parliament, yeah, we cannot stop prosecuting, but we always say, please stop doing corruptions. And even when we were actually invited by the Commission 3 of the Parliament two weeks ago, and they say, please, KPK, it is better to do prevention than prosecution. And we say, yes. Because we have the power for special investigation <coughs> using wiretapping and others. And I say, if you hear our conversations to do some kind of transaction, please tell us, hey, stop, we know you are going to. <laughs> and I say, that's not the prevention. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. I mean, yeah, but they always ask for that special treatment, and we say, no. Tirabole. In my language. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you. My name is Dan Lunny from the University of Sydney. I'm a zoologist. Do you think of uh, wildlife as a natural resource and are you investigating any of the issues involved there? Yes, wildlife, I guess, including as natural resources uh, because I. It's not natural resources, it's kind of like the same as a gold or an oil, but uh, we are considered natural or wildlife. It is a very important part of the environment. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't actually go uh, into the case of wildlife, even though we knew that actually, usually, actually involving uh, rangers and also local governments and of course some corporations. But in the case of Indonesia, like we discovered several other cases on the exportations of uh, the skin of uh, smartphone tigers, which is actually less than 300 in the wild at the moment, and the pangolin, <coughs> and, and of course some, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the task of the elephants. Was it the English or the ivory? The ivory from a Sumatran elephant. Yeah, we and we discovered that this kind of like a, a organized crime, but usually that's supposed to be the enforcement and environmental law. So that's why we encourage our police counterpart and also the Ministry of uh, Environment and, and, and Forestry, because now Bulinda is matched. Now they have, we only have one ministry, one ministry, Ministry of Environment and Forestry, which is in the past actually two 
minister. Yeah, uh, but we have an authorized prosecute corruption related to the illegal trade of wildlife. Um, my name is Ophelia you know, afraid. And you also mentioned earlier that you also think like some um, sentence is not that severe, like only 18 months of imprisonment. Yeah. Is there a measure to increase the severeness of the punishment in the future? Yes, uh, based on Indonesian, uh, our, our law, our current law, actually, the highest penalty is actually death penalty, which is, is I'm not that kind of fan of that. Uh, if, for example, if they repeat their actions uh, after they are commit corruptions and then actually sentence, for example, like five years after they finish and they're doing it again, so the judge can impose capital punishment. Uh, but it's maybe yes, but if you look at like the Palala ones, parties actually had a district they got 11 years in jail so mostly if those involving higher ranking officials never less than five years it is always eight ten but i don't know maybe people think that it's not that severe enough uh we at, of course we have one exemptions when the chief justice of constitutional court taking bribe, we prosecuting him with a life sentence and the Indonesian Supreme Court approved it. So he'll be in jail for life. But how can you, you are actually the prophet of the country and you're still taking bribe. I mean, yeah, so that's, uh, it's hurting everybody. And it's hurting all Indonesian peoples to have a belief in war. This is chief justice of Constitutional and he's not taking bribe from only one, but there were many. We haven't finished actually prosecuting the other two cases involving head of the district with the Chief Justice of course, Constitutional Court. Mm. Yep. Sorry. Mm. Thank you very much for growing the cloud history. Uh, I wonder if uh, you could enlighten me just a little. The stories that you have given are success stories, to a certain extent. That's to say, that these have been cases of successful prosecution. There must be many, many more cases of unsuccessful prosecution. I wonder what your report card would look like, so to speak, over the last period of time, and where you see the uh, strengths and weaknesses of uh, the process. That goes to the burden of proof also. I wonder what the burden of proof is, what the standard burden of proof is that you have to meet. Yeah. Thank you very much for the questions. Uh, 
will prosecute around 70 to 80 cases a year, but we receive a report about 7,000 a year. But of course, after you check it, not all of them actually corruption cases. Some of them even actually domestic violence. <laughs> they send it to KPK and they say, why they're sending it to us? And they say, because we already sent our report to the police, but they did nothing. So that's why we're sending it to KPK. <laughs> Some of it, uh, yeah. But from that 7,000 report a year, I think about 20% actually funded, which is still a high number. But some of them actually below 1 billion rupiah or involving lower ranking officials. So usually we actually send it to the police and to authority general office because they also have the power to investigate and prosecute uh, corruption-related cases. And so for the cut of the Capica, thanks God, up until today, we still maintain 100% position rate. Why we have that? Because we are quite not selective, but very, very uh, uh, how to say it in English? We are try to scrutinize every bit of it. We are certain before uh, we actually send our case to, to, to the court. It's the first. The second thing, the KPK, uh, the, the law of a KPK give us the power more than actually the power given to the police and to the prosecutor. For example, since pre-investigations, we can use special investigation technique, for example, listening to the conversation of the people, and there is no need for an approval from the court, from the judge. Uh, so, yeah, up until today, uh, I think, uh, uh, we are quite su successful in prosecuting uh, corruption-related cases. And of course, we are not happy with the current situations, simply because, as you see, we receive a lot of reports, but the amount of investigators and prosecutors at the KPK, all of them are less than 200, but we have to look after the whole Indonesia, from Sumatra to Papua, which is six-hour flight from Aceh to Papua. So it is uh, there's a challenge. So that's why we just ask the Ministry of Finance to add more budget for us, and the minister, the new minister, actually already say yes. So we want to have at least about 400 uh, investigators uh, and hope uh, we can achieve our target for at least 200 cases a year. 
Actually, with me, I have uh, my director of investigation, Brigadier General Aris Budiman, uh, in your right side. So, if you want something, uh, some information that be secret, he know better than myself. <laughs> yeah, and he is from uh, the police force, uh, seconded in the KPK, and another one, my young investigators, also seconded from the police. Uh, Mr. Alfandi. Yep. Um, thanks very much. Uh, my name is Brian Mellon, and I'm also from the University of Sydney. I'm here in the business school. I wanted to ask you if you could say a little bit more, please, about the uh, um, the other people whom you are prosecuting. And what I mean by that is. Uh, you've mentioned a lot of public officials at various levels. So uh, could you say a bit more about um, with whom they are engaging in corrupt behaviour? Is it small firms, uh, individuals, local contractors? Uh, could you just shed a bit more light on that? Yeah. I do not have have it in my slide, but I can actually check it. I mean, the detail of uh, the detail of the people we prosecute in our website. Um, I think at the moment, number one, mayor, more than 300 so far, uh, head of district, mostly on procurement, and they are involving with developers. The second one is a member of parliament. The third one, I think, governors, and of course, people who actually private sectors, mostly small, medium, and big companies. So that's actually the, the anatomy of the case that we have uh, uh, in Indonesia. And usually, I give two extreme examples. One, it is actually the Chief Justice of Court's report. And the second one, it is the Governor General of the Indonesian Bank. How can you not bring corrupt and you assign the note for God's sake? <laughs> and his salary doesn't more than the salary of the president, but still taking money. There's the two extreme examples that I always give to my students if I teach uh, anti-corruption. Uh, uh, law. And of course, there are several others, some ministers, directors generals, and ambassadors, high ranking police officials, Supreme Court judges, not many, but they are, and uh, prosecutors from the Attorney General Office. Yeah, we still have a long way to go. Uh, and it's quite sad. And I don't really think we can fix it by the end of my terms in 2019. But we actually have, we promised the President after the inaugurations in the palace, he asked us, the five of us actually came to him and said, what do you want uh, from me as a president? You know, I say that 
you guys are not responsible uh, to the presidents, but if I can help, what do you need out from me? And I we told him that we want the corruption perception index of Indonesia in 2019, we can hit 50, at least same as Malaysia, because today we are 36. And I say, that's quite ambitious target, because usually each year only increase two points. And we told him that actually if you give us a support, it may be achievable because corruption perception index it is very very uh, close uh, to the quality of the public service of the government so if you ask your ministers your governors and of course mayors to improve the procurement systems to improve the licensing systems and to improve the quality of services then it is not impossible to hit 50. And he said, uh, okay, I'll give you 1,000%. <laughs> That's what he said. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is a huge and difficult task. And to be honest, I do not really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy talking and discussing like this, uh, but uh, when you start signing something, for example, uh, the start of investigations, and you have to ask your troops to do sophisticated work, especially, I think it was my second week at the office, and I received a letter for the whole part commissioners of the KPK. It is handwritten. And by opening up, it is actually from eight years old, daughters of the accused. And I was reading it and I just crying. <laughs> Oof, it's tough. It is different from teaching or discussing law. <laughs> yeah, I find it is a big difference. Uh, so, congratulations, Brian is being serving as a judge for <laughs> 20 years already or more. Yeah, it is difficult. And since then, uh, I never read again. <laughs> Those kind of letters. <laughs> Any more questions? Yeah, yeah please. Uh, um, my name is Vindu. I'm from the University. Uh, the court play an important role also in tackling these very important issues. Uh, Excuse me? The court, uh, the court, yes, yes. The court play an important uh, role in tackling these issues through the decision, uh, particularly by incorporating the principal in transparency, accountability, and, and environmental principles. Personally, we have, Indonesia have a, 
Yeah, many uh, friends of us, including you, Belinda, Pabrayan, uh, one of them, uh, we always actually want to have the Indonesia to have special court, right? But it is quite difficult to have to establish a new court, including anti-corruption court, because it was challenged by people to the constitutional court, and it is inconstitutional to have a special court on anti-corruption. So instead, the Supreme Court actually created this is a special court, but still within the general court. The special bench on anti-corruption. Uh, anti Another thing is that it is also not only consist of career judge, but also it has to be also heard by, we call it ad hoc judge. So I think that's why uh, we are still enjoying 100 conviction rate in corruption cases. While in environmental law cases, it's a bit different because we experience in several good cases and we knew those judges actually have been trained here in Sydney Uni. We even sent them to Adelaide also. But they come up with very good decisions. And I'm afraid those judges maybe in the future will become the target of a KTK. So it is not about the knowledge. The most important one, it is the principle or uh, the integrity of the judges. And I may also say this is maybe, I don't really know what actually the judges think. If the corruption cases actually prosecuted by the KPK, Usually, they just approve it. But when the authority general office came with the case, sometimes they do not agree with the prosecution of the authority general office. I don't know why. We have to ask the judge, maybe Pablo can give us an insight, how the judge thinks <laughs> in deciding cases. Please. <laughs> no? 
Yeah. More? Great, thank you very much. Um, my name is Sarah McGrath, and I'm with the International Corporate Accountability Roundtable, which is a non-profit organization based in Washington, D.C. Um, I just wanted to ask you to briefly um, speak to the mandate of the KPK and whether you have the ability to go after the corporate entity or just the individuals contained within it. Um, and then the other thing, you, met, you touched upon you know, the various corporate actors involved in some of these cases, the local SMEs, multinational companies. Um, I just wanted to ask if you're also looking at who is benefiting, um, I guess, beyond that um, from these corruption cases and looking up or down the supply chain and also the, you know, the role of parent companies that may have subsidiaries operating in Indonesia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for the questions. Um, this is a struggle within the KPK because under the Article 20 on Anti-Corruption Act, it is stated that not only an individual that has responsibility but including corporations. Since I teach law and I have uh, environmental law, then I can kind of like understand what the difference between the corporations and individuals. So I keep encouraging my uh, investigators and prosecutors actually to start prosecuting uh, corporations. Because in the past, we have actually parallel investigation with UK on Inospec, for example. We are targeting uh, uh, companies operating in UK and Indonesia and bribing Indonesian officials. And there are several other cases which I cannot explain it to you because still under investigation. <coughs> I keep challenging my directors because it's general officer, his David starts to try to investigate cooperation and simply because they know they can, but they say until today we have 100 conviction rate. We are afraid that if we are go for corporations and our record will be tainted and they say no. Just try. And we know that actually it's not an individual, but actually it is recorded in the book and the report of the companies. And so it's it's can be done. We so far we only have one case. It's been decided by the Supreme Court of Indonesia, but it is prosecuted by the Attorney General Office, not by KPK. So we actually have a precedent to do the same in the future. So yeah, this is a new task and I keep persuading them. I even actually to have in-house training and start teaching the theory of it and, and hopefully we'll go for it. Because as I just mentioned, uh, we are working with FBI uh, in private investigation of one particular case at the moment. CPIB, which is actually the anti-corruption body of Singapore, and therefore bribing involving Indonesia, and of course with some Chinese governments, uh, 
and we are also working with closely with uh, Australian police senator jail of Australia, but it's been decided. So we can actually confiscate it separate asset here in Australia with the help of Attorney General Office and the Australian Federal Police for the Indonesian guy to commit corruption and but actually also bought some houses here in Australia. Yes. Thank you. My name is Nasis. I just want to ask you about the contract law arrangement. Has KDK has done a lot of reviewing the contract law arrangement in the case of the contractual between the contractors and also the uh, the, the contract the contractual between the foreign company and also the KKS instead of in, in this case, uh, what can be done by the if it, if it involve the foreigners and also the uh, foreign company? Is there anything that Kapika can do if, if the corruption case involves the foreign company? And the second one is uh, in the case of the uh, report, KPK uh, or any kind of uh, body in Indonesia has not proved. Uh, corruptions in the case of the contract arrangement report. But a lot of people think that there is an unfair contract between Indonesian government and also the report as a company. Can KPK investigate if there isn't enough evidence of corruption in the report case to kind of review the unfair contracts? And the third question is. Does KPK do the asset tracings? Thank you very much. Yes, uh, for the first two questions, the KPK, based on the law, we have we do not have an authority to review a contract between big companies with the Indonesian government. But if there is an information, for example, the Indonesian government actually willing to sign a contract, even though actually the terms in that particular contract actually bad for the interest of Indonesia because of kickback, for example, then we can go for it. But we cannot actually review the contract. That's why we do a study. And based on our study, several contracts, actually the companies with Indonesia are, the term is not really good. So that's why we give a recommendation to the Ministry of Energy and Natural Resources. For example, in mining, there is no, in oil and gas. There are several contracts with these things that is actually bad for Indonesia. Uh, of course, uh, uh, one of the main uh, function of the KPK it is also have the power to investigate money laundering. So that's why we have the power for to uh, trace the asset. I just give you an example. One Indonesian guy actually invests here in Australia, buying property in Australia, and we trace his assets and take it back for uh, the state. One of them here in Australia. One more last question. 
Thank you very much. I cannot talk um, much about this case, about actual reclamation cases in North Jakarta because still uh, under investigation of the KPK. But for my Australian friend, this is involving big corporation reclaim. It's not on reclaim, they just made the artificial islands in north of Jakarta. How many? Seven or eight artificial islands? Uh, eight, yeah? uh, island A, B, C, D, uh, uh, and actually they are trying to, based on our assessments, uh, actually they have no right to establish that islands because uh, there is no, if you look at actually the permit actually given by them based on uh, Presidential decree, I forgot the, the year. Itu pres ke pres tahun berapa Paris? Yang untuk uh, reklamasi itu, ninety four. I think it was actually still during uh, SBY. It's not ninety four. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even during a uh, uh, president uh, Soeharto, they still using it. But now we have these two law above it, which is. Uh, environmental law uh, and also a law on coastals and small islands which is actually this particular law actually contradict with this higher law this is only presidential decree uh, but they keep continue and building up these islands and of course the current governors want to increase the what you call it the the they have to pay uh, about 15% uh, higher tax uh, to, to, to the government if they want to continue uh, with the uh, development of these islands. And we just discovered that actually in, they want just to pay 5%. And one of these big companies actually bribing a member of parliament. And we caught him red-handed, and of course now he's in jail already. And uh, yeah, so I'm sorry I cannot say this because still under the investigation. But we are serious, especially uh, okay. Since my background actually are uh, environmental law and natural resources related. And I see most of natural resources of Indonesia has been wasted. So 
personally, and it is also in the strategic plan of the KTK, we are going to focus on natural resources related to production. So, one of, yeah. Please. One yeah. last question. Thank you. My name is Fanny. I'm from Flinders University in Italy. Uh, my question related to Papua, where I come from. Yeah. Uh, Papua is a rich province which has lots of natural resources. Um, however, it seems that uh, the case in Papua is very friendly. And my question is, do all the all of the activities in Papua are appropriate with the law? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, because there are a lot of violations of environmental law and a lot of violation of uh, uh, giving licenses and uh, in our terms at the KPK we have six pilot provinces. Simply because we cannot just go to every province. So we actually decided to have like six pilot provinces. Why we choose that six provinces? Because too much corruption in there. And Papua and Papua Barat included. And another one, North Sumatra and Aceh and Riau, simply because the three governors already actually prosecuted by the KPK. And the last one, it is Banten. Banten is very close to Jakarta, but from the low level up to the governors has been actually uh, ruled by the same family. Okay, so, yeah. so it is so difficult, it's so difficult. And, uh, and then again, in Papua, for example, too much money. Apart from they got from national budget after there, but also you have this dana uh, alokasi khusus, and if you, it is one of the richest uh, provinces in Indonesia, but it is never managed properly. So that's why uh, we are focusing in Papua. In fact, I just about three months, uh, three months ago, I went to West Papua to 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 Sorong. And I met, this is a very good story. And this may be the last story of mine. Uh, yes, uh, I met the deputy mayor of Sorong, she's lady. It is quite, uh, and she's with hijab. So I kind of quite interesting to see in Papua as a, a, the, the deputy mayor with hijab, you know, and so I asked her, where are you from? And he said, I came from Makassar, which is. I was second from Makassar. How come you are got elected here as a as deputy mayor? And she said, I am the first doctor in Papua. She's a medical doctor. So people love her. So this mayor said he wants to build and he asked her to join her team to become uh, a deputy mayor. To cut the story short, so I asked her, uh, how much is your uh, budget this year? And she told me that I don't know. And I said, no, you are deputy. You should know. How much the budget and what is your priority for the development of song? And she said, 
it is only the mayors and 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 the wife of the mayors who know <laughs> when I say how common is it? Yeah, because the head of local parliament is actually the wife of the business. <laughs> and I thank you very much. And I think corruption is still a long way to be fixed in Indonesia. And I met the same situation in Aceh, where actually the mayors and the head of local parliament are brothers. And another one actually the mayors and the head of local parliaments actually his second wife, not even the first wife. <laughs> <laughs> it is in nature, so that's why KTK are focusing on those uh, roles. They are very rich in natural resources, but very bad manners. I think before okay. I stop, I have to apologize if something that I say actually is not uh, in line what the one uh, the embassy want to say <laughs> it's written but uh, again thank you very much for coming down.